0: From Washington, D.C., and around the world. This is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The next government wide small business set aside from the General Services Administration will be worth up to $50 billion. GSA is taking proposals for the STARS-3 GWAC from participants in the Small Business Administration's 8A Business Development Program. FedScoop reports proposals are due August 5th. The Defense Department's new occupant of the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Comptroller is Navy Comptroller Thomas Harker. The Pentagon's website lists him as performing the duties of the office instead of acting. Federal News Network reports he's been a financial management official at the Departments of Veterans Affairs and HUD. The director of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon is President Trump's choice to be the next commander of NORTHCOM and NORAD. Lieutenant General Glenn Van Herk would replace General Terrence O'Shaughnessy in the assignment. Air Force Magazine reports Van Herk's previous posts include commanding the Air Force Warfare Center. If another government shutdown happens, agencies will need to beef up the plans they have on their shelves. The Government Accountability Office finds some holes in the plans agencies used for the 2018-2019 shutdown. Jay McTighe is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Jay, thanks for coming on the program. What did you look at overall in the four agencies and their contingency plans? Well,
1: Thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me this morning. Basically, we looked at to what extent to what extent agencies adhere to OMB guidance in formulating contingency plans uh, and you know whether or not the plans that they put together were consistent with OMB guidance and whether or not agencies actually plan for a prolonged shutdown of more than five days as you're aware we've had three shutdowns in the last seven years and two of those shutdowns lasted for many weeks and finally, we looked at internal controls over the planning and operations during a shutdown at the selected agencies we looked
0: at. Uh, you wrote in this report that you uh, looked at the, uh, the agency's Customs and Border Protection, Internal Revenue Service, International Trade Administration, and Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And you write uh, you selected those because they're under the jurisdiction of the Senate Committee on Finance and were affected by the FY 2019 shutdown. You found a variety of. Of readiness levels, what were kind of what's kind of the landscape of what you saw, Jay, as far as what these organizations had done, what they had in place to be prepared for these shutdowns?
1: Oh, absolutely, and, and as you said, we selected four agencies, and the agencies that we selected are, you know, illustrative examples of a range of experiences, you know, they vary in size, funding type and activities. And, uh, you know, for example, more than 90% of Customs and Border Protection employees remained on board during the shutdown, while only about 5% of employees at the International Trade Administration remained on the job. And basically, three of the four plans that we reviewed generally followed OMB guidance. But, all four of the agencies could improve contingency planning for prolonged shutdowns, as i mentioned, and strengthen some internal controls. Uh, Basically, Customs and Border Protection, IRS, and the International Trade Administration included most of the key elements governing shutdown operations uh, that are described in the OMB guidance. In contrast, the Office of the US Trade Representative's plan did not address the majority of those elements. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we also found that despite the lack of planning uh, for potential changes in operations in the case of prolonged shutdowns, all four agencies did indeed make operational changes during the course of the shutdown. And so having policies and procedures prior to shutdown that can help agencies manage and adjust plans and communicate those plans both to employees and external stakeholders such as the public, it's crucial.
0: You wrote in this report, Jay, having sufficient internal control, you referenced internal controls a moment ago, having sufficient internal controls in place prior to a shutdown can help agencies implement changes in day-to-day operations during a shutdown. As you just mentioned a moment ago, each of these organizations did manage to be able to pivot. They were flexible on the fly, it sounds like. And that strikes me as maybe the most important thing when you have something like the shutdown where you didn't really know when it was going to end. Am I reading that right?
1: Uh, That's absolutely correct, uh, Francis. However... Uh, you know, while these agencies were able to rely upon uh, conversations, discussions that they had prior to the shutdown and during the, you know, the early few days of the shutdown, uh, the fact that these, uh, these plans, these activities or adjustments that would be needed for a longer shutdown were not thought about ahead of time and documented is a problem, you know, uh, in terms of, as I mentioned, communicating both to employees and external stakeholders who may be relying upon services from these agencies. And, uh, you know, so it's important to document this and communicate it uh, more widely than simply uh, planning internally
0: what's your sense of the connection between what we saw in the shutdown in 2018-2019 where agencies did at least have a sense that they might have to be in the wind down position and something that we saw in uh, like uh, something that we could see like we have seen this year where an agency finds out maybe we have 24 48 hours to wind down is there a parallel in your view between what we've seen with coronavirus and what you looked at when you uh, examined the 2018-2019 shutdown
1: well, uh, first off, you know agencies are required to have contingency plans ready to go and to update them periodically. Uh, and in the current situation, uh, you know, while you know it's different from a funding lapse, uh, you know, we did find some issues that we made recommendations. About including internal controls over physical and virtual access to workspaces, and in this, you know, remote or telework environment that a lot of agencies are operating under uh, during the pandemic, uh, just underscores the need to strengthen those controls over, in particular, the virtual workspaces. And uh, you know, so we think that you know that's an area that could
0: be looked at a little bit more carefully here. Jim, 30 seconds left. Will you go back and look to see what these agencies have done to uh, fulfill your recommendations?
1: Uh, that's a possibility. As you mentioned earlier, we did this work at the request of the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, we do most of our work at the request of uh, committees of jurisdiction. Uh, I think in your lead-in, you also mentioned the potential for future shutdowns, so hopefully those won't happen, but if indeed we do experience another shutdown, we'd be ready to take a look at just how well agencies were prepared and functioned
0: during a shutdown. Jay McTig, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you, Francis. Great being here.
0: Coming next, all eyes on Congress as Citizenship and Immigration Services sends out thousands of furlough notices straight ahead on Government Matters. The fate of the agency if Congress doesn't act soon. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Furlough notices are already on the way to thousands of employees at Citizenship and Immigration Services. The agency couldn't have to furlough almost 70 percent of its workforce because of the coronavirus. Jim Williams is partner at Shamback and Williams Consulting. He's former director of the U.S. Visit Program at the Department of Homeland Security. Jim, thanks for coming on the program. What's the problem here? Why is it that CIS is sending these notices out and they have to lay people off?
2: Well, they have a budget shortfall. USCIS is primarily funded through fees and clearly due to COVID-19 and maybe other reasons, uh, their receipts have dropped off and their employees are at risk. But it's not just that. It's all the millions of people that are impacted by USCIS people not being there to process their applications.
0: Is congressional intervention the only solution here, Jim, is is giving the agency money the only solution? Is this the only way to fix it?
2: I think in the short term, the answer is yes, they need money. They need money in less than a month. And I would urge uh, the House, the Senate and the administration to get together quickly. Don't do a deal on August 2nd or 3rd, but try to get something done now. I think USCIS maybe needs a longer look, too. Like, should everything be done by fees? Refugees, asylees, those are important to the values in America. We have, I think, from what I've heard, refugees who have helped us in the battle against terrorism. who are sitting in refugee camps and they deserve, you know, to be repaid the debt that they've, uh, for the services they've done to us. So, you know, let's continue to be a welcoming nation. But I think it's important that Congress do something now, work with the administration, pass some, you know, the 1.2 billion, whatever it is, to keep them in business. And I'd like to add one other thing, Francis, you know, USCIS has already taken drastic steps. Most of their contractors have been cut to the bone. And I don't know what's in that one point two billion, but for any federal agency to operate, it needs its people and it needs its contractor
0: people too. See, you're getting at the you're getting at the issue here that I think is the most important. Separate out the refugee issue, which I agree with you is something that's important to consider. But for the purposes of this program, continuity of operations and the continuity of the business of the organization strikes me as maybe the issue that's, that's most important to what we're looking at, Jim. And I wonder if the time is right to think about, as you say, whether uh, it, it, we should think about transitioning all of these organizations, or at least some of these organizations across government that are fee-based to appropriations-based. What's the criteria that you think should apply in considering what you just suggested for CIS for some of the other organizations that are fee-based across government?
2: Well, having run a fee-based organization at GSA, we were a business and we depended upon our clients and our customers. And I think USCIS does have customers in terms of the all the people that are applying for permanent resident uh, cards, green cards, people applying for citizenship. Uh, and I think those can be fee-based in my opinion. But I think, again, there needs to be a short-term fix and then a longer-term look at what is really important for our immigration system, because what USCIS does is they administer our immigration system, and that includes its integrity and its security. And it's an important part of of America. It's important to our economy.
0: Are there other fee-based organizations across government that you know of that you think might be at least uh, open to consideration to transition to being appropriated organizations?
2: Well, I think a a lot of them look at it, there's pros and cons. A lot of them that are fee-based don't like being based upon that, and getting annual appropriations seems almost like a guaranteed stream. I like the fact that when I was at GSA, the Federal Acquisition Service was fee-based. We had to work hard for our customers. They had to want us, and it made us be careful about costs. So for us, I think it's a good thing. I think the FBI has been fee based on their fingerprint services that's based upon demand I think that's a good thing it makes you forecast your demand it makes you manage your cost Uh, other places maybe it doesn't make sense but I think for most of what CIS does USCIS I think it probably does make sense
0: what would that transition look like is it just a matter of Congress saying we're going to change this and doing it legislatively are there preparations that the organization would have to make internally what, what's the landscape look like there, Jim?
2: Well, I don't think there's a proposal right now to take parts of USCIS I, that I know of and make it, uh, turn it into a appropriation. So that's a multi-year process. But again, the near term is keep them in operation, both the people and the contractors, get them back up to speed because there are millions of people uh, affected by work form permits, green cards, citizenship and naturalization ceremonies, refugees, asylees. They need the money uh, to keep going. So I do think it's worthy of a longer look. And that may take several years to determine how do you transition and what should you transition from fee-based to appropriations.
0: About 30 seconds left, Jim. What would you watch moving forward? Are you just watching whether Congress gives the agency some money or are there other factors here?
2: Well, I think they have to look at, I think uh, USCIS has had a a rate increase pending for a while. Uh, Will they agree to a rate increase? Uh, And that's probably within the administration. But working with Congress, let's get away from the finger pointing that I think is starting to happen now. And let's get to doing the job of the U.S. government, which is keeping it in operation. Fantastic people at USCIS. They don't want to be furloughed. They like what they do. They want to keep going. And I would just say Congress, And the administration, do your jobs, keep them in business.
0: Jim Williams, thanks very much, as always. Great to see you.
2: Great to see you, Francis.
0: Up next, a major overhaul coming to the federal hiring process. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who does what to make hiring better all across government? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Office of Personnel Management and agencies are on the clock for a 120 day deadline to change the way they assess candidates for job openings. If they hit the marks in President Trump's executive order, agencies could get a big leg up on good candidates. Christine Simmons is vice president of government affairs, at the Partnership for Public Service. Christine, welcome back. It's good to see you. Who has to do what to meet the president's executive order? And, and what, are, what does this deadline mean, do you think?
3: It's an aggressive deadline and it's important to note that this is um, ambitious and yet it's doable because this didn't just drop out of the sky. So OPM is tasked with revising the classification and qualification standards and then working with agencies to ensure that they assess candidates in a manner that emphasizes competencies and skills, not educational attainment or how someone uh, self-certified or self-assessed their ability to do a job. Now, it's not something that OPM just pulled out of thin air. It's actually been talked about, and small steps have been taken over a long period of time, even before this administration. So these are uh, not new ideas, but we're seeing new progress.
0: What avoids, though, the slippery slope back to KSAs? OPM made a big deal about transitioning away from KSAs. And streamlining this process, try to get to hiring faster while still maintaining good candidates. But as I looked at what these questionnaires look like, it strikes me, I mean, let's be honest, there's no way people are going to say they're not good at doing something when they're up for a job. And I wonder how, what, what that logical middle looks like between the self-certification that we have now and having people write out these long, drawn-out things like they used to have to do before.
3: Well, the KSAs are general essays. And what's different about this new process is the introduction of subject matter experts into the assessment. So the questions now with the benefit of subject matter experts focus on competencies and skills. They are specific to the job. They are written by subject matter experts. And so you end up with a far better and richer assessment of candidates than you would get under a KSA model. And this is something that the U.S. Digital Service has piloted with OPM very successfully with some agencies. um, It's expanding in terms of the number of agencies who who are piloting this kind of effort, but it looks like it's yielding results.
0: Well, and and that's the, I think, the thing that's most important to consider is what the results look like. How do you measure whether you're getting what you want out of this as agencies start to transition to it? Whether it takes them 120 days to get there or whether it takes longer, how do you go back then and say, we're getting the people that we want?
3: Well, you're absolutely right that speed to hire is irrelevant if, at the end of the day, we're not getting the people that we need in government, people who have the skills and abilities to do the very challenging and meaningful work of public service. Um, there was legislation that was introduced many years ago by two senators who no, are no longer serving um, that would have required, among other things, measures of hiring effectiveness, including how the hiring managers feel about the candidates from which they can choose. So that's one place to start. Do the hiring managers feel like the candidates before them are the qualified, you know, highly qualified, type of people that we want and need in public service.
0: There were two elements that were maybe not as highly publicized in this executive order, but that that Mike Regas talked about on this program, Christine, that I thought were really striking, and I wonder if they seem as important to you. One is the ability for agencies to see candidates that other agencies liked but didn't wind up hiring because they had other good candidates they chose. And the other is uh, the ability of OPM to set standards across government for job classifications, so that every agency doesn't have to cook its own. Are those potentially big um, roadblocks removed from speeding up the hiring process while also finding good candidates for agencies?
3: Sharing candidates, qualified candidates across agencies is something that many people find both valuable, but also just common sense. If you can find five terrific people who have the right engineering background or accounting or whatever the the occupation might be, and the agency can only hire a couple, why not make those other people available to different agencies who have the same needs? Uh, It's a challenge in that there are different administrative roadblocks, some of them real, some of them perceived and cultural, that agencies are still working through. Congress passed legislation to encourage this a couple of years ago, and they're still working out the kinks, but we think the foundation is there to make good progress on sharing qualified talent across agencies.
0: Christine, about 30 seconds left. What would you watch as this unfolds as the agencies respond and as OPM responds to this executive order?
3: Well, some of the keys will be in how it is implemented and lessons learned from the U.S. Digital Service pilot point to the importance, for example, of having a project manager oversee reforms in the process and modernizing the process. The HR specialists are uh, very busy with their jobs having somebody who's a designated project manager will be really helpful for the implementation. Um, also, training subject matter experts in ethical and fair hiring practices will be important. We want to remove barriers to service. We want people from all walks of life to be able to serve our country and serve their government. This will help uh, help us do that, and it's important to get the hiring process right.
0: Christine Simmons, thanks very much. It's great to have you back.
3: Good to see you, Francis. Thank you.
0: If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, the NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond Virtual Conference is coming next week. You'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government and the national security community and how it could restructure the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. It's available next week, July 13th through the 17th from 1 to 2 in the afternoon. You can join our free webinar at fedinsider.com or you can tune in to WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.